Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. Gravitational is now teleport because when way more people have heard of your product than your company, maybe that's a sign it's time to change your branding. Teleport enables engineers to quickly access any computing resource anywhere on the planet. You know, like VPNs were supposed to do before we all started working from home and the VPNs melted like glaciers. Teleport provides a unified access plane for developers and security professionals seeking to simplify secure access to servers, applications, and data across all of your environments without the bottleneck and management overhead of traditional VPNs. This feels to me like it's a lot like the early days of HashiCorp's Terraform. My gut tells me this is the sort of thing that's going to transform how people access their cloud services and environments. To learn more, visit goteleport.com. This episode is sponsored by a personal favorite, Retool. Retool allows you to build fully functional tools for your business in hours, not days or weeks. No front-end frameworks to figure out or access controls to manage. Just ship the tools that'll move your business forward fast. Okay, let's talk about what this really is. It's Visual Basic for Interfaces. Say I needed a tool to, I don't know, assemble a whole bunch of links into a weekly sarcastic newsletter that I send to everyone. I can drag various components onto a canvas, buttons, checkboxes, tables, etc. Then I can wire all of those things up to queries with all kinds of different parameters, post, get, put, delete, etc. It all connects to virtually every database natively, or you can do what I did and build a whole crap ton of Lambda functions, shove them behind some APIs gateway, and use that instead. It speaks MySQL, Postgres, Dynamo, not Route 53 in a notable oversight, but nothing's perfect. Any given component then lets me tell it which query to run when I invoke it. Then it lets me wire up all of those disparate APIs into sensible interfaces, and I don't know front end. That's the most important part here. Retool is transformational for those of us who aren't front-end types. It unlocks a capability I didn't have until I found this product. I honestly haven't been this enthusiastic about a tool for a long time. Sure, they're sponsoring this, but I'm also a customer and a super happy one at that. Learn more and try it for free at retool.com slash AWS. That's retool.com slash AWS and tell them Corey sent you because they are about to be hearing way more from me. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by a returning guest, Matt Stratton, who's a transformation specialist at Red Hat. Matt, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's really good to be back here. And if getting on a podcast is how you and I talk to each other these days, then I'm all for it. Sounds good to me. So before we dive into this, are you going by Matt? Are you going by Maddie? What do people call you these days? So it's kind of funny. Actually, maybe it's not. Audience, you judge if this is funny or not. My friends call me Maddie, and I decided I was going to, for lack of a better word, rebrand myself that way publicly. I was going to start referring to myself as Maddie. So that's how I had all my profiles. That's how I would write abstracts. And everywhere you find me on the internet, it was as Maddie. Well, after about a year of that, I came to a couple conclusions. So one is after 40-some years of having the name Matt, I can't refer to myself in the third person as Maddie. It just doesn't work. 
Secondly, my family absolutely refuses to call me Maddie. Potentially because my niece's name is Madison, so she's Maddie, but also because of probably the same 40 plus years of one thing. But what I also discovered is I really like it when my friends call me Maddie. So my position now is publicly and in writing, I refer to myself as Matt, but Corey, you're my friend. I like it when you call me Maddie. And Maddie, it shall be. What you're saying resonates quite a bit with me, just because I went through a period where I went by first my middle name and then the shortened version of my middle name. And so at my wedding, I wound up with people who knew me at various points as Corey, Justin, or Jay. And it was always fun having to listen for all of those at different times. Then at the end of it, I changed my last name just because it sounds like I'm trying to flee a dark and twisted past, which, yeah, fair enough. But names are important. What people want to be called matters. I'm glad to hear it's not the equivalent of dead naming if I call you Maddie or something. Because you asked me to call you Maddie a while back. I went through yep. it. Then you're back in public as Matt. And it's one of those, like you're two name changes away from, oh, that guy. Well, and it also, you can really confuse things where if I know you from my swing dancing days, you call me Muggsy. So every now and again, I have friends who will always refer to me as Muggsy, and then I have to explain that one to the third party as well. So there's that. So it's been fun. The last time I had you on the show, it was a combination joint episode of Arrested DevOps and Screaming in the Cloud. And that was challenging on a few levels because it had to align with both directions the show went in. And you were sitting across the table from me. So if I got too insulting, you were going to punch me in the face. And let's not kid ourselves here. The closest I get to fitness is fitness entire burrito in my mouth. So there's not really a great outcome there. Now we're separated by at least two time zones. So yay, I can be much mouthier. For listeners, it'll come as no surprise that sitting across a dining room table did not color how Corey talked to me in any way, shape, or form. Well, what's fun is that I don't know if we told this story last time, but we're definitely telling it this time. You used to come over here for dinner periodically back when inviting people to dinner wasn't a deadly risk. And you'd mentioned living in Chicago at the same time that my wife was going to law school in Chicago. (laughs) And you mentioned that, that you went to this whole law school musical that my wife was in. She goes into the other room and comes back with the DVD of that show that you had made. You did the filming, you did the producing of it, and it was, oh, wow, great. So what I'm really hearing here is you could have introduced me to my wife six or seven years before I actually met her. And I'm a little resentful of the fact that you didn't. Never mind the fact that I didn't meet you until years after I met my wife, but that's no excuse, Maddie. I mean, we find our way where we find, but that was really funny. You know, sitting there and Bethany was just talking about this law school musical at, you know, where she went. And I was like, oh, I produced the video of that one year. And then I started going back through like blog archives to find the year when I did it. And that's when she went back and said, oh, and here it is with your name on it. And you had a mutual friend of hers that was great. Yes. And it's like, oh yeah, do you have you ever met Darlin? Like, yeah, yeah we went to her wedding. Yeah. It was a small freaking world. So let's talk about something that no one is tired of yet, namely COVID and its impact on DevRel. Now, to my understanding, you're not DevRel anymore. That is correct. Yeah, I, I'm technically not. You've in, transformed beyond that. I have transformed beyond that. I've rolled out with the Autobots and become a transformation person. But there's still a lot of what I do that feels very DevRel adjacent. And I'm also still heavily involved in the communities I was involved in before, especially around conferences and events, and I still do speaking and all that. So when we're we're thinking about how DevRel has changed with COVID and stuff as regards to those things, that's the same for me as it is for someone who actually has that on their quote-unquote business card, if that's a thing people have anymore. The problem that I have 
with online events is that people are sucking at them. They seem to be more <laughs> or less the same thing. Now, let me be clear. At the time of this recording, reInvent has not yet started. This is AWS's own version of Cloud Next, wherein it's going to take three weeks of sessions and whatnot, of a bunch of video being dumped online, as best I can tell. And that has the potential to be, how do I frame it? An unmitigated shit show. Because, yeah, reInvent, for those of us who've been there in person, is a lot. It's a solid week of a bunch of content. But the entire world sort of revolves around that in the cloudy space. Now that you're stretching out over three weeks, approximately no one is going to be allowed by their employer to just take those three weeks off and watch a crap ton of video. Now, I could be surprised, but based upon AWS's video and online event stuff in years past, I'm a bit of a skeptic. You said you had some ideas on how to make online events more compelling. What have you got? Well, yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. When we kind of look at the history of this year with events, if you look around that April timeframe, there were a bunch of virtual events that everybody loved. And they were great. I mean, so what I'm about to say is going to sound like damning with faint praise, but you could kind of have done almost anything. And everyone was so starved for doing something that felt at all like a conference that you were fine. And again, if you organized an event that I was a part of in April of 2020, I'm not saying you did a bad job and you only had attendees because of the time. But what happened then is everybody said, oh, well, we can just keep doing that. And over time, you're finding that, again, that appetite you know, that consumers are being a little more discerning maybe is a nice way to put that. And what it all comes down to is this tendency to say what we want to do when we do a virtual event is, well, what did we do with our other event and how do we just throw that online? And just to be fair, quote, just throwing it online is a lot of work. I'm not trying to say like it's oh, easy. Oh yeah, camera work and video and all the rest. I mean, even doing something crappy like that takes a crap ton of effort, work, time, and money. So I think the thing that we need to think about when you're changing an event to virtual is that you are changing an event to virtual. It's like, you know, we like to say getting promoted to manager is not a promotion. It's a career change. If you're an individual contributor and now you're a manager, you don't just do what you were doing before the same way, but do it at a different scale. You're fundamentally changing your responsibilities and the outcomes you're trying to achieve. And that's the key. So I am the founder of DevOps Days Chicago. This was our seventh installment, if you will, of that event. And the first time we were ever doing it virtually. And I'm fairly proud of how we did it. I've said before, the general feedback we got from the event, which was in September, was I hate virtual events. I still hate virtual events. But if we have to have them, I would like them to be like this. And that's about the best I could ever possibly hope for. And... The reason I use this as an example, because a lot of folks are asking me, like, well, how did you do it? And they want to know, like, how did you set up Discord and set up the bots? And that's all fine, but I think it's important to look back to how we approached it. And when we were deciding whether or not do we cancel the event or do we make a virtual event, and this was way back in basically the month of April is when we were making this decision for a September event, we said we would only do this if we felt like we could provide an experience that was in the same spirit. And our event and DevOps days in general are very participant forward. They're very much about interaction. And you'll notice this is the only time throughout the rest of the day that I'm going to use the term hallway track. And I'm only going to use it to say, like, I wish we'd stop saying that. And there's a reason. Oh, I'm right there with you. It feels absolutely like it minimizes the value of talking to humans in a bi-directional way. Or many to many, to be honest. And it's an implementation. It's not an outcome. The outcome isn't to have a hallway track. The outcome is to have genuine interactions with participants. 
So when we were deciding this and we spent about a month, you know, I said, look, while we're making this conversation, I don't want to hear about a single specific platform or technology or anything. Let's take some time and think about what the outcome is that we're trying to accomplish. Because when you start a problem, and this is true with everything we do as engineers, you lead with the tech, you're losing the art of the possible. And we never would have landed with the implementations we did if we started thinking about it that way and the experience would have been different. So for us, it was a lot about like, how do we create a space where people can have this interaction? And I realized that community events are a little different than maybe the more marquee or the larger events that definitely are much more about people talking to you or at you. For us, so we run a single track event, talks in the morning, open spaces in the afternoon, and when I build a program for our traditional event, I always consider that the talks are simply kicking off points for these open space conversations, right? It's so that people have a common thing to be talking about later when they're interacting with each other because that's the real value. I mean, Andrew Clay Schaefer has said with the first DevOps days, he wanted them to just be all open spaces, but he knew nobody would get their company to let them go if there wasn't at least some people standing on a stage, right? And so that's the thing. What you have to do when you're talking about your pivot is, again, you're changing the event. It's not the online version of that event. It's a new event that happens to be online. And we find ourselves falling into this trap quite a bit. There's a lot of things that we do, I hate to say regular, in an in-person event that are simply because of the laws of physics, right? It's not feasible to move a 1,000 people to different rooms every 20 minutes in person. It takes 20 minutes just to move them. So you do things like chunk up your talks, then have your open spaces or things like that. But then in a virtual setting, you can do that. You can move things around. And I think to give a little credit to the extended idea that maybe reInvent is doing, that's a little bit of that idea is like, oh, conferences are day-long events because you can't have people flying in and out for an hour every Tuesday for a month. So... That's a little bit about, I guess, removing that. But when all we're doing is saying, okay, we always have talks and they work like this, so let's just stream them instead, you're not providing anything new and you're not taking advantage of the ability to get these folks working together or talking to each other. And again, the reason I said the HT word is because what people are trying to do is they're trying to re-implement the mechanism that that happened. Well, let's make it so there's a virtual lunch line or we'll randomly pair people up or something like that. But you're like, well, those experiences also aren't as random as we like to think they are. It's not about just Corey and I get paired up together randomly and we'll have a great experience. We probably won't, even if it wasn't me and Corey. But you need to have some way that you're facilitating this stuff. Right, but it's the same people who show up to all these online events who generally tend to know each other, which, yeah, that's kind of the circles we run in, those of us who've done DevRel-ish things for a while. Great. What about someone who's, this is their first event? How do they get dragged into the social story? And that's something that a lot of these events are really missing out on. Well, and I think that's the thing, because they either do it in a way that's not very interactive. I mean, I always say, you know, a webinar with a Slack channel, right? That's not a virtual event. That's, a, okay, again, a very one-way thing. And then you just sort of throw this, quote, community out there and hope that it happens. You have to have a lot of intentionality. 
And then you could go on the other side where there's platforms that just sort of will randomly pair up four people and put them at a virtual table so they can just chat. Well, yeah. how do you know those are people that will have something to talk about? And the thing about all of this is it's hard, which is why people don't do it, right? <laughs> like it requires intentionality. And it's a lot easier to just sort of say we do the things the way that we always did them because we have a process around that and we have an understanding. And I don't have to educate people. That was a big thing with us and I think is going to continue to be a thing. When I look back at our event, I say I wish we had done more sponsor enablement for the event. And I don't mean teaching them how to use our platform. Yes, we did that. But there had to be enablement about you have to change what it means to be a sponsor at a virtual event. Because at a regular event, you can do the I'll throw up a booth with some swag and if I build it, they will come and people will just show up. You have to work harder to get that virtual engagement. And I think that's something that is definitely the responsibility of someone who wants to sponsor an event to think about what they want to do. But as an event organizer, I think it's always really good to kind of help, right? And say like, here's some examples, like maybe you could do this, maybe you could do that. And also set them up for success or at least for less failure by saying, if you're going to just hang out in the video channel we give you and wait for people to come to you, that's not going to work. You're going to be disappointed with that result. So here are some things you could do instead. And, you know, over time, everybody will learn how to do this and that's great, but it's going to require us taking that extra effort, I think, for a while. This episode is sponsored in part by our friends at New Relic. If you're like most environments, you probably have an incredibly complicated architecture, which means that monitoring it is going to take a dozen different tools. And then we get into the advanced stuff. We all have been there and know that pain or will learn it shortly. And New Relic wants to change that. They've designed everything you need in one platform with pricing that's simple and straightforward. And that means no more counting hosts. You also can get one user and 100 gigabytes per month totally free. To learn more, visit newrelic.com. Observability made simple. And that's part of the problem, is that the folks who are organizing these events, at least the corporate ones, in many respects, have competing priorities here. Take reInvent as an example, where the problem that reInvent has had for years has been that it tries to be too many things to too many people. Is it a giant partner summit? Yes. Is it the expo hall where they drive a bunch of business to their partners? Yes. Is it a bunch of service announcements? Sarcastically so, yes. Is it the biggest community event for the entire global community of AWS users? Yes. And trying to be so many different things to so many different people is incredibly challenging at the best of times. And now that they're trying to take that online, which parts do you keep? Which parts do you jettison? If you're going to have a whole partner event, why does that need to be co-located online? I mean, there's no reason to get people in the same room at the same times. The track selection is just a nightmare right now. There's a whole bunch of weird problems that companies are running into trying to figure out how this is going to work. And no one knows. So we're waiting to see. Well, and that goes back to the outcomes, right? Because in a lot of ways, big, giant, in-person conferences are kind of a, becoming an anachronism because... For the longest time, that was the best way to reach a lot of people simultaneously because you didn't have streaming. And so, like, if you think back, I'm thinking back to, like, Comdex days, right? Because that's really where this all comes from, right? Okay, if I wanted to get a bunch of interested people to hear the same message at the same time, okay, you know what? In the 90s, we didn't have streaming, right? That's what you did. We said, get yourself on a plane and come to Vegas 
and spend a bunch of days. And then we've continued that model, even though it's maybe not the most effective way to do that. And it can actually be very exclusionary. Those keynotes are also streamed. So if you can't get to the event, why did anybody have to be there in the first place? Other than that's always how we've done it. And there's a lot of, you know, personal things connected to that, which is it gives them an excuse to go on a trip that work will pay for. So maybe they'll be more inclined to come and listen to your BS. So that could be a thing. But I think we need to really look at all of it and say that the function of several days all in a row that are all together in that way are all based upon physical requirements. And maybe it's not the most effective way. I would argue it's almost certainly not. It's hard to do this. And the people organizing these events on the corporate side too are also looking at this through a lens of they have things to sell, they have a narrative to pitch. They're not in this from the attendee perspective in many respects. When I worked at larger companies that would participate in events like this, the question was very rarely from the event folks around, well, how can we make this valuable for the engineers attending this for engineering-focused conferences? And it just felt like it was missing the point. And that's becoming exaggerated and exacerbated by this move to surprise everything's online. And I think the threat to those big events is community events because they tend to be more participant focused because the people who are organizing them are probably actually participants of conferences and that's their focus. And so if I can say, well, wait a minute, if I can get a better experience out of this for lack of a better word, community event or something like that. I know we aren't having velocity, but why do we have to have velocity? Some of the vendor-oriented ones, because they're controlling the message, so that's not as much a competition. But I think it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing, right? Like when I think about quote-unquote corporate events, the main reason that you're having that is because you want to get a big captive audience to hear your stuff. So if all you have is come to this event and hear us talk about our products over and over and over again and announcements, that's not enough. So that's why you have all this extra content. It's your event that's like practitioners talking and customers talking and you can learn and you can do all this because that's all the loss leader that gets them in so they'll listen to your products sell. Well, if I don't have to come to see you to do that and if I can get that kind of content somewhere else, why do I go through all the hassle of this long you know, whether it's like reInvent or something like that, if it's less appealing. And I think there is a huge amount of attendees at a conference that you will lose when it's not a good excuse to go to Vegas. Then they're like, well, then why really, why do I have to do your thing? Oh, yeah. I don't miss Las Vegas. My God. Yeah. <laughs> it's a town that's built on exploitation. Let's not delude ourselves here. So it always felt super weird to be going there as if it were a tacit endorsement of that. The fact that I don't have to this year is kind of amazing. But let's not delude ourselves that there is a large number of people that would feel exactly the opposite. And it's, a, it's what yeah. you and I see as a bug, they see as a feature. Yeah. And that is the nature of the world, for better yeah. or worse. <laughs> so... Here's a question for you. You were, for a long time, someone who identified as DevRel. Mm -hmm. Now you're not. Talk to me about that. So the funny thing is, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm just being a little more honest about what I'm doing right now. So I've kind of been a little bit on the outside of a lot of DevRelians with being really honest about what we're here for. So there's a lot of noise made inside DevRel and Dev Advocacy and stuff about, well, we're not sales, we're not marketing, you know, as if almost it feels a little bit like a better than. And 
First of all, I think as an individual, you want to get yourself connected. Either you're building the thing that's being sold or you're selling the thing that's being sold. And if you're not connected somehow in a measurable way to either of those things, you are the easiest thing in the world to get rid of, right? So that's a little bit. But I spent a couple of years in DevRel at PagerDuty and I did so much work with our field, with our sales folks, helping with customers and stuff. And I never felt like that was bad. And I think the reason that people feel this way is it feels like they want the community to think of them as very impartial, right? Like you can trust me because I'm not trying to sell you something. And the reality is that happens inherently just by virtue of your title. You don't have to actually not do the things. It's kind of a running joke that a customer will tell a sales engineer something they would never tell their account rep. Because even though you might have sales engineer in your title, you don't feel like a salesperson. So there's more trust for better or for worse. And I always used to say that the best salesperson at Chef Software was Nathan Harvey, the VP of community, because nobody saw him coming. But did Nathan care about Chef making money? Absolutely, because Nathan would like to continue working there, right? And it's actually a partnering thing with your field. So anyway, the point is, I did a lot of work with prospects and with customers, and it was never connected to the product. So like, for example, if I was going to be, again, this is dating us into the past days when we could be traveling places, but let's say I was going to be in Australia for a conference and I was going to be there for a week because you don't generally, you know, fly in and out. I would have 10 to 11 meetings while I was there with potential PagerDuty customers with our sales team. And at none of those meetings was I talking about our product. They would be meetings to talk about, hey, how are you doing instant response? What's your digital transformation look like? How are you learning from instance? It was all very high-level culture stuff, but it's incredibly powerful because it does a couple different interesting things. It makes the customer say, okay, one of the values of if I use your company and now I have a relationship with you and I, I have access to stuff like this that isn't just coming in and doing a sales pitch. And it also kind of adds to that like, oh, y'all aren't just trying to sell me something. And the side of the account team this gives them a reason to talk to the customer. I can't tell you how many meetings I would walk out of and the sales rep would say, I've been trying to meet that CTO for six months, but they took a meeting with you. Oh my God, yes. Done right. DevRel can open doors. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Why do you think I have an interview show podcast? Yeah. Honestly, it's to get me in front of people that I have no business speaking to and also you. Because most folks are going to be, oh, you want to just talk to me at random? Well, that's weird. No, I've got things to do. Do you want to be a guest on a podcast? And people will clear their freaking calendars and be excited to see me rather than their usual reaction of vaguely annoyed. Brian Barry, who was the guy who started the Food Fight Show with Nathan Harvey many years ago, had a blog post and he said, the dirty little secret of tech podcasting is this is how you get people to spend an hour talking to you that you can never get that time from them at a conference. And it's not because they're rude or anything. It's just like, like you said, it's sort of like, hey, Corey, you want to sit down and just talk to me for an hour while you're trying? No, of course. Yeah, again, you would love to because we're friends. But even then, you're like, oh, I got stuff too. You want to be on my show? Absolutely, no problem. And it's very powerful. And it's why I keep doing it, right? Because I get to have fun conversations with interesting people. Yeah, that is really what I view DevRel as being. It's, yeah, I'm just going to chat with people I like and I'm interested in. And oh, by the way, there's an audience. But it was weird. When I started podcasting, still, I don't get a whole lot of feedback in response to these shows because oh, I get letters when I send out newsletters. <laughs> but no one calls in to yell at me about something I say on this show. It feels almost like calling into a radio show, something only dangerous lunatics might do. Whereas then I go to an in-person conference in the before times, and I would get swarmed by people who loved the show. It's holy crap. You mean the microphone was working? 
Mm-hmm. A funny thing that happens is you feel like you get to know the hosts of the shows that you love to listen to, even if you've never met them. I mean, my relationship with Paul began with him as a voice in my headphones for years. And then, I mean, the dude was at my wedding. And I'm not saying like, just because you listen to a podcast, you'll become BFFs with every host, but you get to know them that way. And then it can be kind of a little weird to like when you meet them for real and you're like, oh, you are an actual three-dimensional person, not just the voice of this thing. And I want to go back just real quick to something you said about like what DevRel should be. So one of the things too, I think that's hard is kind of defining what DevRel should do is sort of like defining what engineering means. So like what I was explaining about what I did as an advocate doesn't mean that every single developer advocate should do that, nor would they be necessarily good at it. And they're going to be good at things I'm not. So there's a lot of components to a good DevRel team. Again, it's about being T-shaped and stuff. But I also do feel like I've become a real big believer in, I don't think he came up with the term, but the person who introduced it that I first heard about was John Allspot talking about the difference of work is imagined versus work is done. So you can talk to an organization about like, for example, how do you do incident response? Like, how do you learn from things? And they'll tell you all these things, but then you actually talk to the folks who do the work and they're like, no, that's not what we do. And it's come up two times recently for me. And this is why it's so interesting how it applies. So one is about developer advocacy. So if you talk to a lot of folks in DevRel, they will tell you that like my job is I advocate for the community and I'm a voice into the product and all this stuff. And like, Normally, if that's happening, that's great, and you're actually doing your program really well, but... And then you say, oh, so it's marketing. No, it's not marketing, says the angry DevRel person who doesn't understand what marketing does. Some of it is marketing. That's the thing. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff, right? So, but it's sort of like we, we have this identity that, you know, in my imagined world, I am abstracted away from that filthy lucre of money, and I'm not connected to revenue, and that doesn't matter. But actually, work is done, it super is. And it's funny because it also connects to this idea of virtual events. So one of the things that's very polarizing when you're talking about doing a virtual event is should the talks be live or should they be pre-recorded? And I've given this a lot of thought because I did an event and we fought about it for a long time. Actually, we didn't fight about it very long, but we wanted to. And so when you kind of think about it, the advantage of a live talk is certainly much easier for the speaker in terms of your time commitment is when you give the talk, right? You don't have to pre-record, you have to do all this sort of stuff. And it can feel a lot more, well, it can feel more live because it is, right? And like, you can be like, hey, and if you're the kind of person that writes your slides the day before the talk, it works out super good for you. So your, your content can be super duper fresh. And then an advantage in the pre-recorded is, you know, you minimize connection problems. Your schedule can be correct because at least if a speaker's long, you knew they were long. And if you're intentional about this, can interact with the other participants during their talk. And that's actually really cool. I've done that and I've seen it happen. It's really kind of fun. It's a little weird at first to be sitting there and watching yourself while you're talking to other people, but you can answer questions in real time. You kind of chat, it's fun. But here's the sticker, right? People will tell you, well, the reason that I want to do a live Well, hang talk, on a second. Let's not kid ourselves. There's a lot of stickers in DevRel. There are so many stickers in DevRel. And they're actually hard to get to people now. So it's, oh, yeah. and the whole conference thing? Yeah, that's a scheme put on by Big Sticker. It really is. So some proponents of live talks will say, well, the reason that live talks are better is because the speakers can riff off each other, right? Corey can be like, hey, earlier this morning when Maddie was talking about this thing, that connects right back to what I'm talking about now and whatever. And you know what? That is a great example of work as imagined versus work as done. 
So in the physical space, I will not argue this happened. I can tell you some examples of when it happened super awesome. There was one time I was at a conference. I was the opening keynote. Heidi Waterhouse was the second day keynote and Ken Mugrage closed it out. And our talks, not intentionally, all connected to each other. And then Heidi and Ken were able to build on that. But you know why that happened? Because we were in a physical event and we had to sit in a room together for two days. Virtual events, you have even more likelihood of a speaker that's going to come give their talk and peace out. And their interaction will be just for their talk. And by the way, if that's what you do, that's, that's okay. I'm not judging you unless there was a different expectation. So in, in virtual events, with one very marked exception, every virtual event I've been a part of, either as a speaker or a participant, this has never happened. This reconnecting of talks. And the only one where it happened was Austin's Deserted Island DevOps talks with the Animal Crossing one. And I always point people back to that event as a virtual event to learn from and to not get distracted by the gimmick that it was connected to a game. So the reason that all of us as speakers talked about each other's talks was we were all in a Zoom together all day long. Not talking, but the presenter Zoom, everybody else who was a speaker was welcome to be in there on mute and just listening. And it was kind of a little bit like a speaker lounge. Like it gave a connection to the speakers and we were conscious, but that requires intentionality. Uh, but counterpoint too, for folks who aren't speaking, doesn't that feel isolating? To be in that Zoom, you mean, or to, or to not? To not be in that yeah. Zoom. When, when it feels like all the speakers know each other, it feels like it widens the divide between people who are on the inside track and people who are not. And I've always had issues with that with... I try to spend too much time in the speaker room for that reason, except when I'm building my talk. Once it's done, other than if I'm in there helping someone get ready for theirs, I try and go and socialize with the attendees because not for nothing, Maddie, I see you an awful lot more than I do the folks I haven't met yet. So I'd rather get the chance to forge new relationships and bring people in. Oh, I love your talk. I wish I could give a talk. Well, guess what, buddy? You can. Let me help. That's absolutely true. It's great to go out and meet with folks. And I find a lot of the exclusionary stuff is a little on the strange side. So I'm going to take a little spin on that and say some of the quote unquote exclusionary stuff actually helps build up new speakers. Not to say that you shouldn't do exactly what you just said, because you're exactly right. But you know what? Hang out in that speaker lounge, but not just to talk to your buddies. I always try to do that. If I'm in the speaker lounge and there's a speaker that I don't know who's in there working out, I'm going to try not to interrupt them, but I will talk to them, right? It's a chance to bring them into that fold. And the same thing is true with speaker dinners. And in my couple of years when I lived on the conference circuit almost exclusively, I would run into a situation where I'm like, oh, the last thing I want to do tonight is go to this speaker dinner because speaker dinners are fun, except when you do them every week. But I continually said, no, you know what? You're going to do this because yeah, for you, Mr. Deverell, this is an annoyance and you're bored with it. But most of these speakers, this might be the only talk they're giving this year. Like, this is an exciting and special night for them. And not that it's a special night because they get to spend time with Maddie Stratton. I'm not trying to put it that way, but the overall thing, when we are, quote, professional speakers, we get very jaded about a lot of stuff. Swag is a good example, too. You know, as an organizer, I might be like, oh, the last thing I need is another hoodie that's special for speakers because I get, like, 15 of these a month. But if your program is good, it's not going to all be people that this is the 15th hoodie they're getting this month. And so for the speakers where this is a special event for them, that stuff matters. And that including them at that level, even though it feels a little exclusionary to say for me to say including them into that excluding circle, but it also makes it feel special to do that. So I think 
trying to recreate that in some way because you don't have the simplicity of a speaker dinner. Even that's why I think it's nice to have like a private channel in the event chat for the speakers because it's just a place to sort of connect about a shared experience, which is speaking at this event. Yeah, it's about trying to forge a sense of community when it's difficult to, I guess, reinforce that there is in fact a community there when there are other communities just a browser tab away. It's a hard problem. And I have a lot of empathy for people who are going through it. But I think the cultural tolerance we had at the start of this whole pandemic is wearing thin because sure, you have two weeks to plan a virtual event versus you've had nine months. What's the plan here? And we've also, as attendees and a community, we have that content. Like, again, I think at the beginning of this, everyone was just excited to have anything because we just had to deal with having a whole bunch of stuff canceled. We didn't even know if we'd ever see each other on the circuit again this year or anything. We didn't even know what it's going to look like. So we're, we're really excited about it. And that forgives a lot of rough edges, which is great. But we don't have the excuse of rough edges anymore, folks. Like, this has been going on. We've seen what works and we've seen what hasn't. And the hard news is what works is doing a lot more work than you want to do. Absolutely. It's a hard problem to solve for, and I don't have any easy answers. If people want to hear more about you, what you're up to, what you're not up to, and what's upcoming in the wild world of Maddie Stratton, where can they find you? So I have a blog post I've been working on for about a month, basically ever since DevOps Day Chicago ended, that is all about this. And it's specifically about how we did our event. And by the time this gets published, it will absolutely be done. So I presume that Corey will include a link to that in the show notes. So go look for that. Oh, absolutely, I will. We also have an upcoming episode of Arrested DevOps in the next week or so, which will be in the past for you listening to this now, where we talk about the event. So if you want to hear a little more nerdery about that, there's that. But that being said, if you'd like to catch up with the wide world of Maddie Stratton and in pandemic time of being stuck home eating all the time, that world is definitely getting wider. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Stratton. That's probably the absolute best place to connect with me and find me. You can find me on LinkedIn. I tend to be pretty polite and reply to messages and stuff, but that's not the best place to find me. But I'm fairly easy to find over there. And if you want to see where I'll be upcoming speaking as much as I do, which I'm doing a lot less than I was in the past for lots of reasons, if you go to speaking.mattstratton.com, you can find all my past talks, upcoming things like that. And if you'd like to hear me talk on a microphone without Corey most of the time, our podcast, Arrested DevOps, one of the longest running, still running DevOps podcasts, ArrestedDevOps.com. We, we have episodes every couple of weeks. Most podcasts are measured in minutes. That one's measured in years. It is. It's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't, like I've actually thought about maybe we're time to be done and I just, I can't. It's too much of a thing, you know. So we're, we're keeping on going and we've got a bunch of great content coming for you. But yeah, come find me on Twitter. And only about half of what I post is uh, taking shots at Corey. The other half has responded to the shots I've taken at you. Exactly. It, because it's a bi-directional medium. It's a conversation. Exactly. <laughs> Maddie Stratton, transformation specialist at Red Hat. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. I am cloud economist Corey Quinn. And this is Screaming in the Cloud. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on your podcast app of choice. Whereas if you hated this podcast, leave a five-star review on your Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app of choice you use, along with a comment telling me what your middle name is. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold.
This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.